Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the Big Dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined today with two men who actually share the same name. I knew this day would come. Here they are. First up, Steve Wheat. Oh, that's not the nickname I was expecting. Okay. <laughs> You're Steve Wheat today. All right. That's how I'm going to make a distinction. Uh, secondly, joining us from the podcast spoilers, Prospect Play Stevie. <laughs> I don't know. That's yeah, bad. He gets a spot on the Monopoly board. Like, that's like the bad one. <laughs> that's my neighborhood. <laughs> Corey, is this my second time on, on here? Uh, I believe you've been on a total of three times. So you were on the podcast... Baby's Day Out. Baby's Day Out. Thank you, Steve. And Santa Claus. And the and Santa Claus. There it is. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> Thank you for keeping such accurate records, Steve. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm surprised I remembered anything for more than five minutes at a time. <laughs> so all three of us have gathered here today to talk about the movie Ghost, a 1990 movie directed by Jerry Zucker. 1990. Starring... Woo. Good year, right? Good year. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. <laughs> This movie stars Patrick Swayze, and it co-stars Whoopi Goldberg. I guess I want to kick the conversation off by talking a little bit about Patrick Swayze. Steve, are you a fan of his? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not that fond of most of the movies he was in, but it had nothing to do with him. They just weren't, like, my kind of films. But yeah, he was cool. Chill guy. Seemed like a nice guy in person. Definitely sad to see that he died so young of cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So his, like, dirty dancing and stuff isn't exactly your jam, is what I'm getting from this? Yeah, yeah, not not really my thing. Even Roadhouse, which a lot of people loved, like, I just could never really get into. Like, he's in some things that I liked, but um, his his big movies were mostly not, not up my alley. Yeah, I'd say of his movies, this one is probably uh, number one for me, or at least in the upper tier. Yeah. Giving him a quick glance. He uh, was also in a movie... I think that was him in a movie called Soap Dish, which was it had Kevin Klein and a whole bunch of other people, and it was just, it was a spoof of uh, uh, soap operas of the early nineties. It's meant to be funny. It was it was a funny movie. My favorite movie he was in wasn't really one of his movies because my favorite thing that he was in was Donnie Darko. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, you know, and I, I I like some of the other films he was in, like Soap Dish, but like, and I know I appreciate Donnie Darko wasn't really a starring appearance for him. It was really a Jake Gyllenhaal vehicle, but Fear and Love. People who believe that human life is absolutely too important, too valuable, and too precious to be controlled by fear. Fear and love, that's right. <laughs> that character was so fucked up. He also, you know what, he also played a detective, a police detective in the movie The Player, which is a brilliant movie. Oh my God, that's a good movie, but his part in that film is tiny. Stevie, what about you, Patrick Swayze? I'm a big Swayze guy, so... Corey, you were we were on a someone else's podcast together. We were talking about our top ten films of the nineties, I think. Shout out to Cine Study. Shout out to Cine Study. There we go. And he was in my top he was in see my third favorite movie of the nineties, which was Point Break. Oh he I forgot all about Point Break. Absolutely slays it as Bodie. I think it's his best movie by far. And yeah, I mean, I love this movie, uh, big fan of Dirty Dancing, and uh, Roadhouse doesn't age well, but I guess for its cheesiness, it's pretty cool. 
is Fence for Cheaties. I just realized that I've been thinking about him and Whoopi Goldberg simultaneously, and Whoopi Goldberg was in Soap Dish and The Player, not him. I transposed the two of them. But I, <laughs> I, I often get mixed up. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I'm thinking about this milieu of movies in my head, but yeah, I, but I agree I agree with uh, with Stevie. Like, I, other than Donnie Darko, I would say uh, point, point Break is uh, fantastic. It's a classic. <laughs> oh, well, we can talk about Whoopi Goldberg, too. <laughs> I am a fan of Whoopi Goldberg. I think more so than Patrick Swayze, personally. Um, obviously, she was in a, a wonderful movie that we reviewed called Theodore Rex. That's definitely your best work. <laughs> that movie's a pile of shit. But that movie aside, like, <laughs> um, I know Whoopi Goldberg from the early days of me watching movies, namely this movie, Ghost, but also The Color Purple. Yeah. Um, this movie, Ghost, and The Color Purple were two movies that my mom loved and were just on in my household a lot as a young man, so... I got some fondness for her. Plus, she plays one of my favorite characters in all of Star Trek. She plays oh, Guinan yeah. in The Next Generation. And Guinan is fucking sick, dude. Yeah. Guinan is like just like the wisest person in all of Star Trek. <laughs> a lot of what she was in was crap, but she has the capacity to be very good. Like, obviously, The Color Purple is a huge, huge film, Academy Award nominated. She was also in another uh, movie, civil rights related, called Ghosts of Mississippi, Big into ghost movies. Right. It's like 13 Ghosts, right? <laughs> right? Like, remember that director? He did like 13 Ghosts. Right. Ghost Ship. Oh, you mean John Carpenter? Ghost Elevator. No. Um, oh, no. John Carpenter, <laughs> Ghost of Mars. Yeah, but you know, with Ghost of Mississippi, there's not actually about ghosts, for what it's worth. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. <laughs> I think I understand. I mean, she was also in Monkey Bone, which is pretty incredible. Ooh. Yeah. A future Big Dumb movie episode. <laughs> right. Oh, she was in the uh, Muppets Christmas. Pappy's favorite movie. And Polly Shore is dead. Okay. Yeah. Coming soon in the army now. Right. <laughs> Stevie, Whoopi Goldberg, does she mean anything to you? Yeah, so, man, it's going to sound really strange, but before Glee ever even was breathed, you know, breathed into existence, all the cool kids in my high school did, like, show choir and choir. Hmm. It was an easy class to get an A in. I think I see where this is going. Uh, yeah. And strangely enough, for some odd reason, every year uh, from freshman to senior year, we would watch Sister Act and Sister Act 2. Yeah. In that it. class. <laughs> <laughs> so those movies. I'd like to imagine you guys were the urban kids in Sister Act 2. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With a name like Stevie and my vote, you know, my voice. Yes. But. Yeah, for some odd reason, we watched Sister and Sister Act, uh, Sister Act One and Sister Act Two every year, and I love those movies. Yeah, they are extremely easy to watch movies. Yes, especially if you're in high school and just want to get an A. <laughs> I keep thinking about Swayze. I keep forgetting about stuff that he was in. I, he was also in The Outsiders, which is a really, yes. really good movie. And um, that one's actually legitimately a good film, so I got to put that one up around the top of the list area as well. And uh, the original Red Dawn. I mean, it's a dumb movie, but it's also like a seminal classic of dumb movies. Mm -hmm. Can you like, believe they remade that? No, God, why? It was terrible. It was too. so bad. It should, like, it could be like career enders for people. It was that bad. Yeah, it was really, really awful. I mean, the original's not exactly like a, a seminal work of filmmaking, but it was exactly perfect for that that point in history, and the cast was exactly right. They had all the right all the right people, and 
It's amazing how many movies Leah Thompson was in during the mid to late 80s and early 90s. And everyone, not that I blame them, but everyone only remembers her as being Marty's mom in Back to the Future. (laughs) Yeah, they so easily forget (sighs) Howard the Duck. Well, you know, Howard the Duck is really a brilliant piece of... uh, she She was also in Space Camp. That movie was huge. That's one of those weird examples. And this has happened a million times, including in our lifetimes. It's one of those weird examples of a movie that was super, super duper popular the summer it came out. Huge ticket sales, made a bunch of money. A large percentage of people within a certain age range would have really enjoyed that movie. And within a decade of it coming out, most people had sort of forgotten it even existed. It just wasn't – it was exactly right for that moment, but not special enough to survive. Sort it's like The Last phenomenon. Starfighter. Oh, God, would I love that movie. I'm so pissed off I wasn't on that podcast. <laughs> but, like, man, yeah. Perfect for its time. It was. It was that movie. There's a lot, a lot of positive to say about that movie. But yeah. And another thing I kind of wanted to just tackle semi-briefly before we start talking about Ghost itself is my experience with the movie. Uh, I I double checked with my mom to make sure my memories were accurate, <laughs> and they were. I used to watch this movie on repeat when I was like in the first grade. You, you used to, I'm not picking on you, but you used to like to do that with a handful of movies, didn't you? You had some movies you just like to put on loop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of the movies we've covered, but this was one of them. This is one of the first ones of that type, though. Right. I was so young. Like, this is one of the movies that was for, I guess, adults, teens, you know? It's a PG-13 movie, but I was a little kid, and I would watch this movie over and over. I loved it, and uh, I've loved it ever since. I mean, we don't have to save our feelings, I, I think, it's obvious that a lot of us like this movie a lot, yeah. and that's definitely the case for me. Um, this movie reminds me of my mother when I watch it, yeah. and uh, you know, it's special to me in that way. I understand what you mean completely. Like, yeah. I have movies like that with with my parents as well. <laughs> this one really just reminds me mostly of the early '90s. But uh, yeah, this was one of those movies that, like, I, I was way too young to see it in the theater. I wasn't. I was seven when it came out. I wasn't even really conscious of what it was until it was already two, three, four years old, but I, I had a, there were certain scenes I was really fascinated by. So sort of similarly, I wouldn't really watch it on loop, but if I found it running on a movie channel, there were always certain, certain scenes I would, I would want to see again. What about you, Stevie? So Corey, I think we've had this discussion before where <laughs> this movie is like in a very special file in my brain for the fact that I was watching movies at a very young age. I shouldn't have been watching um, and this is probably one of them. Yeah, that's come up a few times on spoilers. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, it wasn't the fact that, like, my dad was always like, oh, hey, my son's here. We should probably watch a movie that's more at his speed. It was always more of, I want to watch this movie and my son is here. <laughs> I respect so- that. My dad would just hand me the VHS tapes. Like, here, you'll probably like this. Don't tell your mother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, Total Recall, what's this about? That was literally one of them. I knew it. Yes. I was watching Silence of the Lambs at like five or six years old. Right. So, like, really, I mean, this is one of those movies where it's like, yeah, I probably didn't understand it all the way when I was like four or five, but I did love this, or do remember distinctly loving this movie as a kid. It is a great movie. And Steve, that leads me into a question for you, sir. Hmm. How the hell was this movie made? How the hell did this movie get made? <laughs> a lot of, not a ton of information around, and the home video releases for this film have been pretty light in regards to bonus material. But the movie was was written by a guy 
named Bruce Joel Rubin. Rubin has had an interesting career. He's he's been involved other than as a writer. He, he's done some good things and some things that don't seem like they should be in his his career. He wrote a science fiction film in 1983 starring um, Christopher Walken and Natalie Wood called Brainstorms. Kind of a neat sci-fi movie. He did this. He also did Jacob's Ladder. Ooh. Yeah, Ooh. which is an interesting movie. But uh, he also wrote Deep Impact from 98. Yes. And Stuart Little 2 and uh, The Time Traveler's <laughs> Wife. Oh, and, man. Right? And he kind of tapered off there, didn't he? <laughs> right? Yeah. And in 2012, he did a musical version of this. So... A very weird career, but uh, Ruben apparently had this idea of telling a ghost story from the perspective of the ghost, which in and of itself I actually think is, is an interesting thought. There's a rumor, I'm not 100% as true, but it's around a lot, that he got the idea while he was watching Hamlet. Um, there's a part in Hamlet where father, his, the ghost of his father asks Hamlet to avenge his death, and the story is that Ruben saw that and sort of combined it with his idea to have a story set from the ghost's perspective and it would be about uh, a ghost trying to either get revenge or help save somebody and he sort of combined combined both together he did um, actually confirm that so i saw an interview where he he said that exactly his own words he said the hamlet quote is revenge my death yes and that was part of the inspiration to write the script and he stuck it cool. into the movie i guess it makes sense because it is in the movie the he, the he and the sam wheat character we'll talk about in a minute gets shot while the two of them are leaving a production of hamlet macbeth or no it's you know what you're right there it's macbeth they go to see yeah yeah but still there's a connection shakespearean yeah. connection yeah. yeah but uh they brought on a director named jerry zucker before they had a final <laughs> yeah thank you for stevie you probably know what i'm talking about here <laughs> They brought in a director named Jerry Zucker before they'd even finished writing the script, and Ruben was not initially happy about that because no. Zucker, <laughs> right? <laughs> Zucker had spent most of his career working as part of a team called Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker, and they were a directing team, and they mostly did screwball comedies, and uh, they were known for the movie Airplane with Leslie yes. Nielsen. In fact, he worked with Leslie Nielsen quite a lot. He also did a, a television show uh, with Leslie Nielsen called Police Squad. I mentioned the show Angie Tribeca to you in a text a few days ago. Angie Tribeca is no longer in new episodes. It's been off the air for three or four years, but it is like the modern version of, of Police Squad. It's it's like a Leslie it's Nielsen good. TV show. It is good. I've never seen it before. I'm actually watching it for the first time as an old show, but yeah, man, it really does play like one of these. Anyway, um, Zucker also eventually went on to do to direct this film um, as well as a movie called First Night with Heath Ledger in it. Oh. No, no, not 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 that one. Oh, no, 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 he did the one with Sean Connery in it. Didn't yes, he? yes, yeah, that's right. And uh, and then he also did the movie Rat Race, which is actually kind of a funny movie, but is is also sort of an it's 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 almost a remake of another movie. Anyway, yeah. real quick, first night that was my first exposure to like the King Arthur story on the big screen. Oh, really? Well, not on the big screen. It was a rental for me. Right. But. And it, I did I actually did the same thing. I saw it. A screen. I saw it a on the, in a warehouse video and it had Sean Connery on the front with the sword. And I'm like, oh, I know what King Arthur is. This will be good. And it turned out it's a romance movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Richard Gere. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, anyway, Rupin and Sucker eventually got, got into it together. They decided they liked each other. Ruben's initial scripts for this movie were a bit darker. He didn't really want there to be any comedy in it, but Zucker found ways that Ruben liked to integrate a little bit of comedy into the script, mostly via the Oda Mae Brown character, 
who we'll talk about. Oda Mae Brown was not written with a specific actress in mind, but they cast Swayze first, and he was such a big fan of Whoopi Goldberg's, he suggested um, bringing her in. Swayze was not the first choice for this part either. They offered the part to several other actors, most of whom turned it down because they didn't think a ghost story from this perspective would actually work. Probably almost for the better because I think Swayze turned out to be the right choice. They cast Demi Moore, the story goes, specifically because she could cry on cue. But also apparently there's a rumor that she could force herself to only cry from a single eye. Right. Which is really weird. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but they really wow. liked the idea that they could capture scenes where it's like that that classic cinematic trope where you get the tear down one eye, you know, and they liked the fact that she could, she could, she could do that. That'll save the budget on eye drops. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, we don't have to buy nearly <laughs> as much Visine. Um, yeah, so I, I, not a whole lot of drama that I'm aware of with the background. They cast Tony Goldwyn, the guy that plays Carl in the movie, who's sort of the villain almost unwillingly they, they thought that he seemed like too nice a guy in a lot of his auditions and it took a while for him to convince them that he could play the part and that part of the effectiveness for that character was going to be that he seemed kind of unassuming on the surface which was, we can talk about when we get into it for sure but yeah I mean in terms of like background to getting the movie made it's about all I've really heard one sort of side note I guess is that for whatever reason rather than shoot Rather than build their apartment as a set on a soundstage, which would be the normal thing the vast majority of the time, they chose to to use an actual unfinished loft apartment for the one that Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze's characters live in in the film. And it's huge. It's 4,300 square feet. It's Damn. in Yeah, right? And it's in the Soho neighborhood in Manhattan. So 4,300 square feet there is massively expensive. And the place actually sold in 2015 for 10 million bucks. Jeez. Right? And that kind of, even as a kid, before I realized that it would be worth that kind of money, the one thing that never really made sense to me is like, she's an artist, but they give you no no indication that she's a super successful one. And he works at a banker, as a banker, but he works as kind of an account manager, which is a good job, but not like a you know, investment banker making millions of dollars a year. So for the two of them to have a 4,300 square foot loft in Soho in Manhattan doesn't really make sense. The two of them probably could not have afforded that place. But yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, I think that takes us right into it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Stevie, why don't you kick us off? Uh, why don't you tell us how Ghost opens up? We meet our characters, etc. It's... Okay, so one thing I love about 90s films is I think I could be wrong, but I think 90s films are the most distinct. It's the most distinct decade of film. You can just spot a 90s film instantly. Mm -hmm. And they kind of do something at the beginning that makes me laugh so hard, which is, you know, they're somewhat renovating this giant loft. And, you know, <laughs> the funniest part of it is, is not only do Swayze and Tony Goldwyn and Demi Moore have sledgehammers, but also they we open up with the film of them hitting this wall, and when they knock they knock the wall down, the giant reveal is, you know, Swayze and Goldwyn both have their shirts off, rocking eight packs. Like that just makes me laugh so hard every time. I love the idea of these rich bankers that are just yes. incredibly jacked that just are doing their own construction. Like, they're going to renovate this fucking loft just with, like, sweat and grit. Like, <laughs> these, 
These these high rise bankers are real salt of the earth guys too. <laughs> I mean, swinging their own hammers, doing their own renovation. That's yeah, how they fight. Roll. A lot of them doing their own contracting work. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. They look like male models. Like these guys are fucking Greek gods. They are sculpted. Oh my god. It's like yeah, Zoolander I, working in the mines. I feel like they they cast the Sam part from the perspective of like a romance novel. It's one of my one of my small problems with this film is like it doesn't you're right. The character doesn't doesn't mishmash well. It's just they wanted somebody they could put on the cover of the book, you know, standing there with the open shirt and the hair built wind blowing filling through his hair and it's like, you know, he's he's got the sledgehammer. Look how look how sexy this guy is. He's he's brains and brawn. He's a banker, but he also does his own sledgehammer. <laughs> there are a lot of little things like that that I'm going to pick out in the movie, but I don't want to give that idea that I don't like it because I do. I yeah, do like I it do quite too. a lot. I love <laughs> stuff like that too. I just I have to point stuff like that out because it just makes me laugh so hard. Even before that, the movie has like a weird tonal opening where it's it starts off like the score. It's like the spooky part of the score, and it's just going through this like unfinished loft and the camera's just kind of like tracking through it and it seems like scary and you know the movie is titled Ghost and like imagine you just like sat down in the theater and you're like oh shit is this gonna be a horror movie? <laughs> That's what my wife asked me. It looks like a serial killer's lair. And you know I wonder I kind of wonder if that's almost a carryover from Ruben's earlier drafts when the script was a little darker. I don't really know any of the detail about where it was gonna go. Well, I, I have a couple things I'll mention later but you're right, it does give it sort of a spooky air. It reminds me a little bit of the, the opening shots in the first Alien, where as the credits roll, they're panning through the interior of the ship and you see all the panels lighting up. But, like, that's spooky on purpose. It's supposed to be creepy. Right, that's know? a horror movie. Yeah, like, you know, and, and, and this is... It's, I, I appreciate it on the one hand because it's like, ooh, ghost story, spooky. And they, they do have some little touches of darkness throughout the rest of the movie, but... It does seem out of place considering that they go from there to look at these two male models and their equally attractive female model counterpart <laughs> doing sledgehammer renovations. <laughs> I do appreciate that uh, Demi Moore appears to be like maybe like less sexualized than they could have made her. I, I think you're right, and I feel like the short haircut is a large part of that. Yeah. But what's funny about that is apparently when they cast her, her hair was longer and no one asked her to do that. She just showed up one day with her hair bobbed, and the director was like, what the fuck? That's like a big no-no, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. To get your haircut before production? Oh, yeah. Yeah, huge, huge. I mean, look, ultimately, they can fit actors and actresses with wigs and stuff. They have professionals in makeup and blah, blah. They can hide that stuff pretty well if they have to. But, yeah, they if they cast you looking a specific way and then you change your appearance without asking them first, they, they do not like that. Very famously, James McAvoy, when he got hired for Professor X for X-Men First Class, immediately shaved his head. And they were like, no, you're going to be younger. You're going to have hair, goddammit. There's a story, and it's been corroborated, so I have a feeling it's at least mostly true. Alec Baldwin was in a movie in the mid-90s. Oh, shit that I'm now forgetting the name of, but it was him and Alec, uh, Anthony Hopkins. Him and Anthony Hopkins, the two of them play characters who end up getting lost in the wilderness. We can just cut it down to that. Oh, oh The Edge? The Edge, thank you. Yeah, it's the and, bear uh, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baldwin apparently showed up for the first day of shooting. He'd, he'd been cast like three, four, five months before they actually started shooting. Showed up for the first day of shooting with a massively thick beard. He apparently had not shaved at all since the day he was cast. And he wanted the beard for the part. And the director and the producer very much did not want the beard for the part. <laughs> 
and it apparently turned into an actual screaming and yelling match that included things being thrown. And uh, the guy, now I can't remember exactly what his role was. He was either an agent or, or a producer. I'm pretty sure he was a producer and a pretty big league producer. Ended up writing a book about his experiences in the industry that I think was called, this. Is, it was either called This Isn't Really Happening or This Can't Really Be Happening, something like that. And they turned the book into a movie with Robert De Niro in it. And in the opening of that film, they spoof this argument that, that Baldwin apparently had with the producers about the beard. I love that. Right? And it's, it's so funny. One day we'll get in a movie, the Christian Bale uh, Terminator Salvation. Yes. <laughs> That'll God. Be... I don't want this to sound weird, but I feel like it's happening more and more. This is the way I just see it on film. I think with the Bob haircut... I think it presents a stronger female character than long hair would. Oh, like, okay. That's just the way I read it on screen. Like a bob haircut to me seems like a stronger, a uh, stronger character than a female with long hair. I do think they go that way more often than not when they want a real powerful female lead. Like I'm thinking about it, I'm pretty sure they kept uh, Ripley's hair short for most of all the alien movies. In fact, the third one they shave her head completely. Yes. I think the only exception I can think of is most of the. Uh, Tomb Raider variations, they've 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 had the actress keep longer hair. Mm-hmm. And even when she did uh when Angelina Jolie did Salt. Which turned out to be a real mediocre movie, but they they had her do a lot. But yeah, I think you're right. Uh back in the ghost, we see Patrick Swayze. He plays a character named Sam Wheat. Demi Moore is his girlfriend Molly. They're just moving in together. That's why they're doing construction on this loft. And then they got a good friend named Carl, who we talked about is played by Tony Goldwyn who is uh, now famous for a couple other roles. Steve's favorite movie, The Last Samurai. He's in that. So. <laughs> you know what? It's not a bad movie. There are just certain specific <laughs> elements of it that I have real serious problems with. Tom Cruise should not have been the main character. <laughs> no, he really shouldn't have been. He also should not have been able to start fighting hand-to-hand with samurais after three weeks sober and a little bit of time with a wooden sword. But Dude, the power of AA takes you far. Trust me, I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it does, but I'm not sure it existed back then. that's true Uh, I don't think he had like a six week chip with him you know it's not like this is what I'm banking on (laughs) and to Steve's point though Uh. since they're not married like I wonder who signed for the loan for that loft because they won't give you a loan unless you're married like with joint income so either she is like the most successful artist in Soho or he's laundering money himself (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I, I believe that the two of them would have been able to have a nice place in Manhattan. I would have believed that the two of them lived in Manhattan, but not in that huge-ass place. There's just no way. That is a nice fucking loft they got. Yeah, I mean, and given what, even back in the early 90s, what real estate in Manhattan costs per square foot, that place would have been worth millions of dollars even back then. I just don't, I don't believe it. 90s money, yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, real quick, Carl also does the voice of Tarzan in the 90s Disney Tarzan. Oh, that's right. So The one really? with the Phil Collins theme song. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. That was, I don't think the very last, but one of the last four or five animated Disney movies to get released to Laserdisc. <laughs> so let me guess, Steve, you own it on Laserdisc. I don't have that one. Oh my God. Yeah, you I know. You call yourself a collector. But I, I, it's true. I'm a horrible collector. I do have a couple of animated Disney movies, though, that I have no interest in watching just because they happen to be late print discs and it's interesting. But like... <laughs> uh, so Sam and Molly, their home life, you know, they're in a relationship together. Their love is strong. We see that pretty early on with a very famous scene 
Um, a scene that I want to say has been parodied, but oh I can't think God. of any specific examples. It probably has been, though. Maybe yeah. on, like, MTV Movie Awards or something. That You know, probably in those kind of yeah, environments. Yeah, and in television shows. It's been spoofed a bunch. The vase scene yeah. with Unchained Melody. Stevie, do you have thoughts about it? As a kid, all I could think of was this is the greatest scene ever made. Like, but you're right, though. It's really cool. And I think what really makes this movie go, um, outside of, you know, the seven different tonal shifts it takes, is Demi Moore's and Patrick Swayze's chemistry throughout the movie. And I think it, like, really comes to the forefront in that scene. Absolutely. I think it's one of the most romantic scenes in film history. Patrick Swayze specifically called it the sexiest scene he'd ever been involved in shooting. And I hate it. I do. I hate it. <laughs> you hate the scene? I do. I'm, I'm so sick of it. Like, I, I loved it when I was 10 because there's a glimpse of Demi Moore's panties. And I was like, this is the shit. Bearing in mind that I was 10 in 1993 and the internet was not what it is now. But uh, yeah, I, well, I guess hate's too strong. But like, I, I find it boring. It just goes on too long for me. Like, I understand the reason for having it there, and it's a nice sentimental moment, but they could have trimmed like a minute and a half out of it. I, I don't know. No, I think it's perfection. Uh, Absolute perfection. There was supposed to be even more, Steve. See, and so I know. It was supposed to actually be I just, move into a sex scene, which it starts to, and then it stops. Yeah, I think that's it's a good true. choice. I, I feel the same way about the scene later on when he possesses Otome's body, and they they like it just I get it. Like I I don't I don't need this much reinforcement that the two of them are in love. The story is supposed to be about him being dead, not about the two of them humping. Oh like, man. <laughs> I, I know. I don't know. I feel like at some point they just they're, they're, that's my my issue, but they're writing it too hard like i get it. i don't need this much of it to reinforce that the two of them are in love with each other like, i quite like it i really do and i like the song and the song reminds me of this movie song. reminds me of being a kid and uh yeah i mean i just think it's so nice to see that um, but i guess i can see where you're coming from steve that's fine <laughs> Still, something more up your alley pun intended i guess right is um <laughs> when they leave the Macbeth show which happens a little bit later yeah i think they uh they stroll down the same alley that Batman's parents got shot in, if I'm not mistaken. That's exactly like what it. I was thinking. You Crime alley. I, you're right, though. I do like that. Those scenes work a lot better for me. Like, I'm okay with the scenes to reinforce the closeness. It's just that the vase scene just seems like such a hokey, teary-eyed, like, oh, look at how physical the two of them are. I don't know. I'd, I'd much rather see, like, the two of them just be, like, real with each other. You know, and I think that's more like the scene when they're leaving... Macbeth and he does the ditto and she, you know why can't you ever actually say it to me and blah 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 like that that stuff worked better for me why don't you ever say it what do you mean why don't I ever say it I say it all the time I feel no like... you don't you say ditto and that's not the same people say I love you all the time and it doesn't mean anything sometimes you need to hear it I need to hear it. Well, okay, so there's a, a minute scene we got to touch on momentarily real quick earlier in the movie where Swayze's character is some kind of like an accounts manager who's also responsible for sales or, or bringing in clients, and he's real busy one day, and so he asks his friend Carl to handle a money transfer for him. And in doing so, he has to give Carl access to what's basically a password that authorizes the financial transaction. It's part of the auditing trail so they can see who made the money go where, when. 
that doesn't really come back till later, but it's important to remember that prior to Macbeth, uh, Sam had given Carl that information. And then, uh, so Sam and, and Molly go to see a, a show, a performance of Macbeth somewhere, looks off Broadway in, in New York. And on their way out of the theater, the two of them are discussing their relationship. And it's sort of established that it's kind of an interesting dichotomy. She, she'll tell Sam that he, lo- she loves him and he'll never really say it back. He always just says ditto. And that becomes kind of a, a playing point later in the movie that he, he clearly does love her, but there's this issue with them saying it. And then the conversation momentarily segues into the possibility of the two of them getting married, which she initiates. But then he responds by saying, that's an issue, that's something you never wanted to talk about before. You were never interested before. So it's very interesting that, like, he's got this issue saying, I love you, but she's the one that never wanted to talk about extended commitment. Sort of Mm -hmm. an interested dichotomy to that relationship. And as they're having this conversation, unfortunately... They encounter a very mean man who we find out later is named Willie Lopez. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Willie shows up basically out of the shadows, you know, looking like a fucking street urchin. <laughs> and he was a comedian and a pretty, pretty successful one at one point. Ladies and early 90s, and he said his career actually got better as a comedian <laughs> after he played this part. I, I, I would love to hear the bits related to ghosts. Right. You know, you know who uh, Luis Guzman is? Yeah. Apparently people confuse him for the actor who played Willie all the time. And he's got to tell them like that wasn't me. <laughs> I didn't kill Patrick Swayze. <laughs> he actually did say that. Yeah. He's like, I'm not the person who killed Patrick Swayze. But yeah, Willie confronts Sam. They have kind of a scuffle. Uh, you know, Willie basically seems like he's trying to rob them, which he is. Yeah. But in the scuffle, he shoots Sam. And there's a pretty cool fake out where he runs away after, like, he shoots him, which is kind of off screen. Willie runs away. Sam chases him down the street. And then Sam comes back to tell Molly, ah, he got away. And then he sees Molly cradling his, his corpse, body. which I think is, yeah. a, again, it's a good fake out because, like, you believe that. The way it's shot, it... it Makes it seem like, oh, the gun went off, but maybe he wasn't shot. Yeah, yeah, you, they definitely get you there, I mean, by which I mean they trick you there. But uh, it's not a big nitpick for me, but it is a little nitpick for me the way they played that, just because later on it seems like there's a, an odd amount of variation, like up to a minute or so, of how long it takes for the soul to start separating from the body. And in that moment, it's kind of like Sam was a ghost the exact second he got shot. <laughs> But, but, but fine, whatever. You know, I'm shot right in the heart, man. Right? <laughs> but yeah, it's a nice scene. I mean, not nice sentimentally, but the way it was choreographed and shot with... He turns around and realizes that Molly is 50 feet behind him cradling his actual body, and she's trying to get help. As um, a ghost, he doesn't speak, but the terror in his eyes says it all. Yeah. It's a really great bit of non-verbal acting, I think, because his face... And when he's looking at his dead body, it's like, oh, man, it's it's so powerful, I think. Yeah. And then you get the the, the beam of light. Right. Uh, that That's comes right. down behind him, sort of signify to, like, you've got the opportunity to leave here. But, he has uh, unfinished business, though. It's Casper rules. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> see, but... That's the one of the weird inconsistencies I think about this film is like they make it seem like certain people don't even get the opportunity to leave until that business is done. But Sam got an opportunity to leave literally 30 seconds after he died. So I don't know. Right. Yeah. And some people don't get even that opportunity at all. Right. right? Depending on what they've done in life. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Stevie, 
maybe you can talk more about Sam being a ghost. Like, there's some quick scenes where it's, like, kind of scary. Yeah, it really did scare me as a kid. I mean, Sam being a ghost, it's kind of cool because it, it gets somewhat trippy and almost dreamlike where, you know, he's like, what's going on? What's going on? And there's scenes of him, like, waking up his bed, like, waking up in his bed next to Molly. You know, then there's those scenes of, like, jumping forward. There's, like, two or three dream sequences of, like, you know, what's happening to me. And then, you know, you hear Molly talking to the doctors, and then it's when we get to the hospital. And that's when we also get another inclination. Yeah, there's other ghosts out there, like that older gentleman who was so sweet and also somewhat of a dick at the same time to him. Yeah, I know, right? He's like, you poor bastard. It's like, oh, gunshot. <laughs> Happens every time. <laughs> yeah, he is pretty, like, cold about the whole thing. I'd like to think he's seen this, like, so many times that, yeah. like, he's emotionally disconnected. I think that must be it, right? Like, if you're a ghost, even if you're a ghost, if you've spent the last decade haunting a hospital just watching people die, eventually you're going to get pretty blasé about it. <laughs> I mean, he like... probably got his doctorate at some point. He's probably an MD at this point. Like, what right? else did he have to do with his time? He's standing over the doctor's shoulder going, oh, you should have clamped an inch over. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with you? I do like the way you described it as dreamlike, Stevie, though, the in-between moments. Yeah. Like, when Sam wakes up in bed and he looks over and sees, like, the, the statue, the creepy-looking, like, almost like Catholic church saint statue kind of thing right there. That moment, like, it, it scared me when I was a kid just seeing that. It, worked, it plays kind of perfect, too, because one yeah. of the themes of the... I wouldn't say a theme, but one of them is what Sam's talking about of, you know, every time something great happens to me, he's kind of just waiting for the bottom to drop out. And when he wakes up from being shot, as a viewer, you can almost say, oh, this is just a dream because he's been thinking about that. But, like, the haunting part mm. is, no, it's no, he's dead. Right. And this movie becomes officially supernatural at this point, right? And I, I think that was a lot of the appeal to me as a kid. You guys notice, though, that, like, they never show Sam actually going anywhere. They just show him getting there, like, or being there. Like, you don't see him traveling to Oda May's neighborhood. There's just a shot. We just saw it here a moment ago. There's just a shot of him being on the street. And, uh. like, and like you don't see him getting back home with Molly from the hospital. He just sort of ends up there. And it- You do partly, right? So there are parts when you see him on, like, the subway. And then later on, they yeah, stop true. showing that. So you're kind of like wondering, did he just hop in the car with someone? Yeah, and that's that's what I'm really wondering is like, how do cars work for him? Because he's <laughs> not, and even the subway sort of doesn't quite make sense because if he's inside the car, he'll stay inside the car. But if he sticks his head through the wall of the car, he's not in it anymore. And like, he can only interact physically with things on a limited level. And even then, only when he knows how to do it and... It's just like, yeah, is he using taxis to get around? Like, how does this, how does this happen? Maybe there's a dead taxi driver with a ghost taxi. Right? Maybe he's just, like, possessing a person's body and then driving the cab himself. No, it's the Scrooged taxi driver. Niagara Falls, Frankie Angel. Do you remember the, the <laughs> yeah. Ghost of Christmas Oh, my Pass? God, yeah. <laughs> Niagara Falls. That guy? <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that guy shows up all the time. There it, it is. We filled in the gap. Right? <laughs> But yeah, Sam is coming to realize that he's dead, and it, it's very hard for him to accept that. One little touch that I liked on my most recent rewatch is that he stays near his body, right? And wouldn't you? Like, if you just died and you were in his position, you'd be like, trying to be like, no, how do I get back to life? And they take away his body, and he's like, no. He like tries to stop it, and it's gone. And he's like, yeah. fuck, 
I'm just a ghost now. God damn it. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I think it would either A, be curiosity about whether or not they'll be able to, like, maybe, maybe they'll bring me back. Maybe they'll save me. Or B, maybe there's a way I can force myself back into my body. And yeah, or both, you know. Right. You know, there are parts of the movie where, like, like it becomes obvious a ghost can possess another person's body, even if only for a few minutes at a time, and it's exhausting. Like, there's a scene with Oda May where a spirit occupies someone else's body. There's a scene later in the movie where uh, Sam uses Oda May's body so that he can touch Molly again, which for me, I thought was way sweeter than the pottery scene. But anyway, but, like, there's never a moment where it's like, well, you could just jump back into your dead body then. And in fact, in the original, one of the original drafts for the screenplay, there was a scene at the end. They, they originally intended for Oda May to die. And there was going to be a scene toward the end where Oda May dies, but then her spirit jumps back into her body just so that she can beat people up using her own corpse. And it's like, if that's the way it works, then why don't you just jump Whoa. back into your body? Yeah. That's not the way it works. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh. A, a couple quick things. So we were talking about this a little bit, but Sam is hanging around. He's hanging around Molly. He's not sure what to do. Eventually, Willie shows back up at Sam's place and kind of like stalks Molly. And that's when Sam follows Willie, which he has some trouble, like, um, I guess, grasping the idea that as a ghost, he can just go through things at first. But he starts following Willie and um, that's when he gets on the subway. So that's when we do see the, the little bit of traveling that he does. Most of the time it's off screen. But the scene with the doors kind of neat, but it's also like, why are you still not getting this at that point he's already been a ghost for like a day like he tried stopping his body at the hospital and the car medical cart literally went right through him like you shouldn't need this long to have figured out that you can go through solid stuff just how long would it take you to become ghost dad steve 20 minutes <laughs> 20 minutes and you're bill cosby i'm done yeah it's like look i get it i get it okay i'm fine i can go through stuff let's just walk through this door you know i don't 48 hours later if you still haven't figured it out the problem is you like with some proper ghost counseling, I think you can get through this. <laughs> Dude, it would have been so cool if he ended up somewhere like in Beetlejuice with the like like the, the death counselor. <laughs> I can't remember what they call her character in Beetlejuice, but that's so good. Just sitting in the waiting room. <laughs> yes, with the shrunken head and the cigarette man. That God, I love that movie. How'd you go? Anyway. Gunshot. How'd you go? Gunshot. Heart attack. <laughs> right. Oh man, when Tim Burton was good, he was good. Oh. Sam goes onto the subway, like we mentioned, and he meets crazy hobo ghost on meth, played by Vincent Schiavelli. What do you think about that? Sam! This is mine! I love this part. This is one of those scenes as a kid I used to just want to watch. Every time I saw the movie on, I'd sit through this part. What do you think, Stevie? <laughs> God, okay, so as a kid, this dude frightened the shit out of me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very much so... I hate to say this because it just sounds so rude and kind of a dickhead thing to say, but like, it's almost like, have you guys ever been on subways in New York? No, not yeah. me. Okay, well, I was one, I was on one um, going to a Yankees game when the Cubs were playing there and uh, there was, he had to have been a homeless guy. It was a homeless guy screaming at all of us to get out of his house. And yeah. um, that's what Vincent Schiavelli reminded me of. Where he recognized yeah. that, hey, you know, this car isn't big enough for two ghosts. And he <laughs> just wants Patrick Swayze extra dead. He wants him in the light at this point. 
<laughs> you get a very similar experience occasionally on the BART in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he's, you know, he's putting his head out of the subway. He's throwing him from car to car. Like, it's actually kind of an intense scene. Yeah, it is. That's part of why I like it. I liked I actually kind of liked it as a kid because it sort of scared me. I was one of those weird kids that sort of liked to be frightened. In fact, I, I was hard enough to scare. I think that part of what fascinated me about it is that like that actually did scare me. But I, I thought that that element to it, Stevie, to your point, was kind of cool that like that was very spooky and, and weird to consider that like there's these other spirits that haven't figured out how to transition or haven't mm-hmm. wanted to transition. And they're just hanging around in the real world and they've got these places they sort of live and this one just spends eternity wandering around in these subway trains and solving crossword puzzles of strangers (laughs) right (laughs) and wandering around in the tunnels and like there's something about that that like i think part of the reason i love movies in general is because i really love the idea of like these imaginary constructed worlds and i think that like like that's just this imaginary constructed existence of this ghost who lives in the subway system. I think it was very neat. I dig that. For sure. Uh. <laughs> um, Sam eventually follows Willie home. He learns he's after something, right? Willie is uh, continuing to follow up on Sam's life and Molly and stuff. So basically Sam's not sure what to do. So he kind of wanders around like Willie's side in New York. I'm not sure what area that is. Not a great area, obviously. <laughs> But he eventually wanders into like a a psychic spiritual advisor shop. I don't know about you, Stevie, in Indiana, but we have those everywhere out here in L.A. Like you ever been to one? I've never been to one. What about you guys? No, I know people have patronized them before, but I figure if you're in a 900 square foot studio apartment in a mediocre neighborhood claiming you're a psychic, something's wrong because you should have won the lottery by now. (laughs) So... I went and got my palm read in Munster, Indiana, after playing 18 holes in a 100-degree sun and too many beers. And this woman (laughs) didn't have a lot of bright things to tell me. It was very ominous. Right? She said that I should fear water and that I should stop judging people before it's too late. So that was my experience. (laughs) (laughs) Do you fear water? I've always feared water, but you can say it about anybody. <laughs> in 2039, Stevie will die in the world's most famous cruise ship sinking. It will exceed the legend of the Titanic. <laughs> I really like what Sam is doing here with um, Otome, like the whole like beginning scene and pretty much any scene with Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg together is like fucking gold in my opinion. The two of them work really well. It's a hard tonal shift. They they uh, it is a tonal shift. I, I like the fact that Zucker was able to sow some comedy into this and in a lot of instances I think it worked but to your point I think there are also a lot of moments where it's like whoa okay we're doing funny stuff now. Um, and they originally wrote Oda May to be the opposite of what she is in the film. They originally wrote her to be a completely legitimate spiritualist not necessarily psychic but that she actually totally could communicate with spirits but nobody believed her everyone thought she was a con artist even though she wasn't whereas the way they ended up playing it is the reverse in the sense that like she's never actually been 
I mean, they don't exist, obviously, but like she's never actually been a spiritualist. The whole thing's a con. She just puts on a bit. It's it's a show with these two her two sisters. They get these people in to pay twenty bucks at a time, and she's like, "Oh yeah, your loved one." And there's a scene where she's got a woman sitting there, and she keeps going through names until she lands on the right one. It's like, did you ever know a Mona or a Lisa or a George or blah blah? No, she goes through Hispanic names. Yeah, exactly. She's a Hispanic woman, and, and, she, and then she picks out Maria because, oh yeah, there's a, a you know, of course, a Latino person's going to know someone <laughs> named Maria. Feeling something? Did he know someone by the name of Anna? Consuelo, Lucita, Julieta, Josefina, Linda, Maria. Sissy, his mama. She is Maria. Yes. Praise God, I knew he was with his mama. Oh my God. <laughs> like, you know, it's it, it. I think I as much as I agree with Stevie that tonal shifts can be a little jarring in this film sometimes. Moments like that sort of helped make it work. I think Oda May's character is more fun because of that. And because when she realizes she's hearing something for real, she's like, what the fuck is going on right now? She really freaks out. Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> what a crock of shit. Who is that? Julio, where are you? Julio, Julio, did you hear it? Where are you? Julio? Who are you? Oda? Julio? Julio? You can hear me? Sister, don't you hear him? I don't believe this. Hey, you. Julio? Hey, you. My name is Sam Wheat. Can you hear me? Sam Wheat. Say my name. Say it. Leave me alone. Sam Wheat. Say it. Say my name. Sam Wheat. Say it. Talk to me, Yoda May. Say something. Julio. Sam Wheat. But I like that she enters the room with basically like a magic trick. Yes. In a closet. Yeah. With a hidden door. It's empty. And then it's not. Like, and she's there. That's like, proof that she's a spiritualist. I love it. Stevie, can you tell us about how things go with uh, Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg here? Okay, so this is like the real comedic moment for the simple fact that, you know, Oda May, like you guys said, is just kind of a charlatan. You know, she's just robbing people blind. You know, there's different tiers of her being able, her, different tiers of her seances of, if you want me to go even deeper, I need 20 more dollars, stuff like that. <laughs> and this is probably one of my favorite parts of the entire movie. It's a simple fact that Swayze won't leave Oda May alone. And it's when she's trying to sleep that night and he keeps singing, what is it, I Am Henry VIII? I Am Henry VIII, I Am, yeah. Yeah, that part is so funny to me. I am Henry VIII, I Am Henry VIII, I Am, I Am. To this point, this movie's pretty heavy at certain points. I mean, it's it's dark. It's starting to get a tad bit lighter. Then it just goes full comedy with him, you know, singing I am Henry VIII, I am, while she's trying to sleep. And that's when she's like, you know what? I just got to help this guy. Fuck it. I got to help him. I love that he just pesters her into submission. He's like, look, you can hear me. I need you to go talk to Molly. And she's like, I have eternity. Yeah, I don't need to sleep. I'm just going to be here 24 seven. I was thinking about it though. I was like, if I could suddenly hear a single ghost and he was like talking to me, like I can hear you guys now. I would be like, fuck off, dude. Like, oh, yeah. I never want to hear from you again. Yeah, if they were like around all the time, just talking constantly and like no one else can see them and has no one else, no idea what's going on. But you're trying to have conversations with other people and you hear the ghost's voice constantly in the background. Yeah, it would drive, it would drive you nuts. Yeah, but he just annoys her into doing what he wants, which is go talk to Molly, which they do. Molly's very skeptical 
which is understandable, of yeah. course. But like, I like that when Otome shows up at the apartment, she's like yelling up at Molly's window, and like she gets into like some New York argument with another guy. That's a good moment. <laughs> hey, Molly, I know about the green underwear that you wrote your name on. I'd never get over that. I'll tell you that. Hey, you hear me talking to you? I hear you. Oh, shut up! Nobody's talking to you. Didn't you ever hear of a phone? Wanna kiss my butt? I'm not gonna stay down here all day. Thank God. Oh man, shut up. That's a good moment. And you know, I don't know what, I do, do not know what the story is. I wish I did. I would love to know what the details are. But there was apparently another scripted moment between Oda May and a passerby on the street where they get into an argument, an additional argument, that Zucker hated so much. He just, he outright refused to film it. He told the executive producers, I won't, I won't shoot it. I literally will not shoot it. I will walk off the set. You'll have to get the second unit director or someone to do it for me because I hate it. And they just ended up cutting it from the script. What? What scene is that? I have no idea. There was, there's no other detail floating around except there, there was a scene that he hated so much he refused to film it. And I, I would love to see where it went because that moment between her and the guy in the window is funny. It is really funny. <laughs> uh, we get a very famous like line that is like kind of when someone shows a clip of Whoopi Goldberg in this movie, this is usually the one you see when she's talking to Molly. And so basically oh, Sam... Yeah is talking to Whoopi Goldberg, saying, tell her what I'm saying. And he says, Molly, you're in danger. Now you can't just blurt it out like that and quit moving around, will you? Because you start to make me dizzy. I'll just tell her in my own way. Molly, you in danger, girl. You in danger, girl. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a good moment. Yeah, it is. That, that's definitely been clipped. And that's another one like the, uh, the pottery moment. It gets spoofed quite a bit. Basically, where that leads is Otome, like, gets kind of freaked out by the whole situation after finding out, like, there's kind of a lot of details to this. Like, Sam isn't just some ghost. He was, like, killed. There's a plot going on. Like, it's dangerous. She splits. Yeah. So Sam is kind of left to his own devices again. And Carl, who is Sam's best friend, kind of, like, is comforting Molly a lot. He's skeptical. Um, but eventually he agrees to go check out Willie Lopez. Right, Steve? Yeah. So Molly eventually tells Carl about what she heard from Oda May and Carl, you know, tries to play it like, oh, this woman's crazy. She's a con artist. She probably went through your trash to get details. And Molly keeps trying to reinforce that, like, this woman knew stuff she couldn't possibly have known unless Sam's the one that told her because Sam and I are the only two people that knew whatever happened and I've never met this person in my life. But, you know, Carl plays it like it's all bullshit. She had to have some other way. She's been spying, blah, blah, blah. But that segues into, into Carl excusing himself and going to Willie's. And this is where they established that um, Carl hired Willie to rob Sam. The reason being that Carl is helping some mobsters launder some money using accounts at the bank that he and Sam both worked at. And he wants to use Sam's access codes for the transactions so that it can't be traced back to him. And Sam gave him those uh, access codes earlier in the film but um, he's gone back Carl has gone back and tried to use them and discovered that very smartly Sam changed the access codes after having Carl make that transfer for him so the reason Willie went back to uh, Sam and Molly's loft to begin with was to try to find a written copy of the numbers Right, and that's what he was looking for and uh, you know then it delves into like you weren't supposed to kill him you were just supposed to rob him and, and Willie's response is basically, I gave you a freebie, you should be happy I got rid of that asshole. But it's sort of like double incriminating because 
on the one hand, it's like, okay, well, you know, you didn't mean for Sam to die. But at the same time, you sent this violent armed dude to rob him. And it's pretty obvious that even if Carl had gotten what he want and Sam hadn't been shot, that Carl was going to use Sam's access numbers for this money laundering and then blame Sam for it yep. if he ever got busted. So, kind of a scumbag. Yeah. That's a good <laughs> point, man. It's because Sam would have... It would have all fallen on Sam. Yeah. So it's pretty obvious that, like, fine, his plan wasn't to have Sam die, but his plan was to have Sam be the fall guy for, for this, this money laundering. And Carl was starting to freak out. He freaks out at Willie a little bit. He's starting to freak out because the people he's laundering this money for um, want it. He's got, what do you, I think he says $400,000 of their cash locked up, bearing again in mind, this is also 1990, so 400 grand's worth a lot more at that time. And, uh, Carl's supposed to be getting, getting like an $80,000 piece of that for himself. Right. But he can't get the money to where it's supposed to go because he needs Sam's access codes in order to make the transfer. After Carl is revealed to be the villain, like you totally see him in a new light. Like he yeah. seems so much more evil. Did you ever see him in a good light? <laughs> he didn't seem like that big of a scumbag before. Oh, he's 90s smarmy though. Like you can <laughs> tell from the beginning, like there's something off with this guy. I could see how, though, he could just be looked at as kind of like a, a goofy, like, awkward, whatever dude. Like, yeah, it's, like, sort of greedy, but not necessarily a bad dude until you realize that he is a bad dude. He's a really, really fucking bad dude, right. as it turns <laughs> out. Uh, Molly does go to the cops, and I just want to make a quick note that she goes and uh, visits Milton from Office Space. Yes! Steven Root! Steven Root! <laughs> it's my favorite part. He's also Bill Dotrieve and several other voices on King of the Hill. Yeah, he's great. I love him. Another quick note is that, like, when Carl is doing his, like, embezzling computer shit at work, there's a really funny shot to me. It's not meant to be funny, but, like, he's on the computer, and the camera tilts up, and it just shows Sam looking very disappointed watching him. <laughs> right. <laughs> he doesn't say anything, but he's just looking so disappointed. <laughs> Later on, Carl does go to visit Molly, Stevie, and maybe you can tell us about, like, what goes on there. Like, he's... He's getting even slimier. Is this the coffee scene? It is. Oh, my God. Okay, so... <sighs> I stained my shirt. This is the <laughs> worst. Molly does a quick turn away, and what's he do? Whoops, spilled the entire coffee on my white shirt. Let me take it off. Oh, now my underwear are chafing me. <laughs> and reveal my eight-pack to you once again now that Sam's out of the picture. But, yeah, he's just a really... <laughs> really slimy dude i mean this is also kind of like a heartbreaking part too because molly's vulnerable after everything that's going on and he just tries to get with her and sam's like god damn it like not only did this dude kill me but he's trying to steal like the love of my life sam is fucking pissed yeah and uh i i just real quick I want to ask you two, have you guys ever been in a situation with a woman where you're like trying to put the moves on her so you find an excuse to take your shirt off? No, you know, I, I, a handful of times when I was like 12 years old, I, I did try that sort of cliche, like see if you can put your arm around her move. Because okay. I thought that's, when I was 12, I thought that seemed really grown up. But you, I, when you mean when you yawn? I, you like yeah, stretch? I, I oh, the yawn stretch. Do, Classic. I, yeah, 
basically, yeah, I wouldn't go as far as, far as to do the actual yawn, but I would get you know, in a movie or something. I'd wait till that moment and just see, see if you can get your arm around her, you know? And like, yeah, but that's, that's, I never did the, uh, I never did the, my, oh, my, I've changed, I've uh, stained my shirt. My clothing is chafing me. <laughs> or, yeah, we, we should just, you know, get comfortable. Take your clothes off. It's fine. I don't mind seeing your bra, you know? I don't want to <laughs> take my clothes off, especially if they don't know me very well. I might scare them away. <laughs> like, yeah. If one thing I've been, if there's one thing I've been taught by the current social climate, it's that women definitely want you to just strip in front of them for no reason and totally uninvited. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? <laughs> just have a coffee stain on your shirt. You don't have to take your shirt off. Oh, you know, that's the rule. If you spill something on yourself, you can start stripping in front of women who are not interested in you sexually. All right. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't operate off that rule at all. Steve, you wouldn't? By the way, I don't oh. recommend. Maybe that's why I'm having such bad luck. <laughs> Sam discovers that it is possible to use the force, right? So he... (laughs) (laughs) This is George Lucas's contribution to the script. (laughs) So earlier, one thing that Sam does is he, like, realizes that animals can kind of, like, sense his presence in a weird way. So he, like, scares the cat to get Willie out of the apartment. But at, at this point, he, like, in his anger, dives for Carl... And obviously he just goes right through him, but he does like knock over the picture and like that kind of freaks out Carl and Molly. Uh, so he needs more help. He, he's like, oh, wait a minute. I've seen this before. Fucking Hobo Juan Kenobi <laughs> on the train. He was doing this shit. Stevie, uh, we get to see Vincent Schiavelli again. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, we get our kind of classic Rocky training in the mountains montage here. Running in the snow with a log, you know. Yeah, exactly. He decides to take on uh, Sam as his, uh, I guess you could say, as his student. And he teaches him that... His Padawan. Yeah, you can move stuff, (laughs) but it takes all the hate, anger, emotion, every emotion you've ever felt in your body to move things. How did you do that? You gotta take all your emotions, all your anger, all your love, all your hate, and push it way down here into the pit of your stomach. And then let it explode like a reactor. And that's when we get the classic scene of Swayze trying to kick a, a pop tab and he ends up just falling on his ass. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. It has to be like force power at that point because you're not corporal. There's nothing physical you about you. You can't touch things. <sighs> that's know. what he says. What the hell are you doing? You're trying to move it with your finger. You can't push it with your finger. You're dead. The problem with you is you still think you're real. You think you're wearing those clothes? You think you're crouched on that floor? Bullshit! You ain't got a body no more, son. It's all up here now. You want to move something, you got to move it with your mind. <laughs> There's a lot of things that don't make sense in it, but I do like the lighting and how like how the movie looks in these scenes. I think it looks really yeah, neat. Agree. The movie is generally dressed very nicely. I don't. I wouldn't go as far as to say that there was anything particularly exceptional about most of their scripts. Excuse me, sets. But mm-hmm. uh, overall, I would say that the film is just very. There's nothing wrong with any of it. It looks very nicely, logically set up. All the sets work real well. The inside of their loft is cool. I love Vincent Schiavelli. He's just like so yeah. unhinged. Like he's like this crazy fucking ghost. Been on the subway <laughs> for however many Too decades. Long. Yeah, and. Like he has some really good moments. Like the first bit is when Sam like won't leave the, the train and he goes, you stubborn asshole. (laughs) I love that. And then like after Sam kind of learns the process of how to do it, of how to move things in the physical world, 
Sam's like, so like, what happened to you, man? He's like, you know, like, I'm sure every ghost asks the other ghost, like, so how'd you die, you know? And he's like, they pushed me. How long have you been here? Since they pushed me. Someone pushed you? Yeah, someone pushed me. Who? What, you don't believe me? You think I fell? You think I jumped? Well, fuck you! It wasn't my time! I wasn't supposed to go! I'm not supposed to be here! <laughs> like, oh, they, yeah. <laughs> they pushed you? He, he goes off on this rant about having been pushed in front of a subway car, but the, there's sort of an impression that that might not have actually happened. <laughs> right, because he's so, like, unhinged about it. He's like, <laughs> he seems very defensive. Right? Yeah, and kind of like, you know, it seems like you might have just fallen or jumped or something. I don't know. You think I jumped? Right? He seems like one of those people that, like, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but I've met this kind of person a few times, especially as, as kids, where, like, there seems like there's always one kid in the group that no matter what anyone's doing, they find some way to, like, he's doing that because of me, or he's doing that to make me feel bad, or, you know, the, all these people are picking on me. It's like, no, no one's doing anything to you. Like, he eventually exits the movie with, who sent you? Right? So he starts freaking out. He kind of gets more and more freaked out until he's like, realizes, like, holy shit, did I just teach someone how to do this? That's going to do it for it's like. It's going to hurt me. <laughs> yeah. Right. So uh, he, you know, he exits the movie, but Sam, he has the information that he needs now. So Sam has like a few resources that like not a lot of ghosts have. He can move things in the physical world and he found someone that can hear ghosts. Otome. Yeah. So like, he's. As far as, like, living as a ghost goes, like, that's probably as good as it can get, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess he can't get drunk anymore, so what are you going to do? You know? <laughs> I'd give anything for a drag. Right? right? <laughs> it, God, it would have to be, it would be torture if there were, like, because there's going to be something from life you miss. A meal, you know, or something. There's, you're wandering around in the world and you're there, but, like, you can't, you can't have anything. You can't touch anything. You can't interact with anything. You just have to, like, be there. You know, I guess that's kind of the point with Sam is what he really wants back most is Molly and Molly too. And like the, the only, the, the thing you want most is what you can't have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sam goes back and visits Otome who now has gone legit. And I, I love her process now when she was faking the ghost communication thing, it was like so stupid. Right. And now it's very basic. She just like asks if that person is in the room. Right. Like she's like, is there an Orlando in the room? And he's like, yeah, I'm here. She's like, he's here. <laughs> right. Orlando, Orlando, is there an Orlando here? I'm here. He's here. Like, that's what it would be, right? Like, why would she have to put on this show? Like, Yeah, they're just they're hanging around. You tell me which one of them you're looking for. Exactly. But the question is, is how did the ghosts know to find her? I, I get the feeling that, like, her power kind of just kicked in coincidentally <laughs> at the time Sam was around. Right. And then eventually other ghosts who are just around all the time realized that she can hear them too. Went on like the ghost bulletin board, the community board. She does blame Sam. She says like, did you tell all these motherfuckers? <laughs> <laughs> right? No, I can't stop seeing them. Okay, so when Sam reconnects with Otome, he forms a plan Stevie, maybe you can go into that a little bit. He has to have Otome pose as Rita Miller. The way I saw it was, I imagine Carl was laundering this money through inactive accounts, but they had money sitting in it. Yeah, they were inactive or, or just fraudulent that had been set up in other people's names. Yeah, completely, like, spurious. Yeah, so that makes sense, though, Steve, what you were saying, though, that, like, Carl was going to take down Sam one way or another. 
Because, yeah. I mean, Sam, like, obviously, Sam, I mean, he was seeing it, but he was going to see these accounts getting flagged at some point or another. That's why he was staying yeah. late that that one night. That's pretty much what made Carl say, let's speed this up. Yeah, I mean, that, like, you know, there's always a small chance you do that sort of thing and the accounts never get looked at. And no one ever really gets busted. I mean, money, people get away with money laundering. But, yeah, I mean, it's obvious that if there had ever been any kind of an audit, but, you know, because of the access codes and all that, it would it would have been easy for anyone, the government or anyone else, to say, well, wait a second, what is all this money? You've got you've got these transactions for large amounts of money being moved around to accounts. We can't find a person who's actually associated with the blah, blah, blah. Somebody would get busted for fraud. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's when Sam takes uh, Oda May to the bank and said, we're going to find this inactive account that Carl has all this money in and we're going to withdraw all of it, which I think was what, yeah. four million? Yeah, four million. Which I mean, a lot, a lot of money right now in 2021. But in 1990, even more so, adjusted for inflation, that would be you know a really large sum of money. Yeah, and so pretty much, it's pretty comedic. Oda May's trying to get through this entire thing as Sam's talking to her, along with Oda May realizing she has four million dollars in her hand uh, mm-hmm. that she thinks is utter life changing. Well, Rita, it looks like you'll be withdrawing. Four million dollars from us today. Four million dollars! Say yes. Say yes. Is that correct? Yes. 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 Which is ridiculous for someone who apparently has a background as a con artist because what are you going to go deposit four million dollars into a fraudulent account it's exactly what the guy you're trying to stop was going to do with it right. like and you and you will get caught there's no way you can move that kind of money around i mean fucking they tried to bust al capone for something like a decade they had him tied directly to multiple murders and you know what they ended up busting him tax for? evasion tax, tax evasion <laughs> exactly like they will bust you for this shit not just that, but also, can someone explain to me how Oda May showing her ID helped her be Rita Miller any more than her just being Rita Miller? They, they There's a part when Molly's at the police station talking to Stephen Root where he, where he pulls a file on Oda May and tells Molly that, that Oda May has a history of being a con artist okay. and committing acts of fraud. So it is something she's done before and would be comfortable with, but but I will put an asterisk next to that. And to your point, it seems a little odd that she would have been able to get a passable, functional fake ID in Rita Miller's name inside of like two hours. <laughs> like you think it would have taken a couple of days to get a hold of, but I don't think they did the magnetic scan back then. I, I mean, probably not. Yeah, you're probably right about that. And they weren't checking out at the bit, but even just to have something that looked convincing. I mean, even on a 2021 printer, if you printed out something that was supposed to look like a state ID and laminated it, it wouldn't look right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you got to have someone who knows what they're doing. Make it. I really like the bits with Lyle Ferguson, like especially when I was younger, that was like really my favorite. Oh, that's a good part where. Yeah. She pretends to have known him from this party, and he was just, like, so wasted that, like, he doesn't remember, so he has to, like, play along. I really like that. Tell him you've been wondering how they did on the Gibraltar securities. I was just wondering, how did you do on the Gibraltar securities? The Gibraltar securities? Well, it looks like we topped out on that, huh? We sure did. We sure did. That was a very useful tip. Good old Randy. Good old Randy. Got a good old head on his shoulders. Her shoulders. Her shoulders. Her shoulders. Randy. Yeah. Uh, but eventually she does get the money. Uh, she wants to keep it. 
She can't keep it. Yeah. She's forced to donate the uh, proceeds to her next film, Sister Act. (laughs) (laughs) Please put this directly into the congregation where I will be at in my next film. Yeah. And what do you know? (laughs) One year later, she's Sister Mary Clarence. Coincidence? It would have been pretty hilarious if that were like a side sequel where she joined the convent that got the money specifically to try to steal the money. (laughs) (laughs) Like... Uh, that, that was probably the original script of Sister Act. Right? <laughs> uh. Carl obviously doesn't get to make his fraudulent transaction, so he is really having a hard time. I like at yeah. this point in the movie and from here on out, he just looks like a fucking strung out heroin addict. <laughs> right? Like he is not looking good, man. Yeah, I, 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 they played this part well. I mean, because, you know, look, if you're down to the last like two or three hours um, before the mob is expecting you to have transferred $400,000 of their money, and you're not going to make it, you, you probably start getting a little nervous. My big question is, at that point, why not just leave? Like, you're you're going to get, you're going to get either busted or killed. It's guaranteed. Like, 100% guaranteed. So, it, you, like, you can tell you've lost. You're not going to get this money back. Stop even worrying about it. Just pack a bag and get on a Greyhound bus. Go anywhere. Take up a, you're, it's going to suck, but take up a new identity and go work at a Denny's. Like, fucking whatever, you know? <laughs> Like, just don't be you anymore, because you're dead. You're fucked. It's over. Game over. Like. Nah, he's too evil for that, man. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Uh, This is where shit kind of starts getting real, because Molly, who happened to be at the bank, lets it slip to Carl that Otome was there. So Carl and Willie, they go after Otome, and things are getting kind of, like, tense. The the tone of this movie, I don't want to say it's all over the place, because that makes it sound negative. It, it operates with a, di- a lot of different tones and it transitions between them well, I think. Yeah. In terms of story beats. Like, they seem to flow naturally. And the next bit is uh, quite a bit of tension because they're up in Otome's apartment looking for her, looking to kill her or get the check, whatever. And uh, Sam's up there haunting Willie, basically, with his <laughs> newfound power. So we actually get to see him use his power well he did it a little bit earlier to freak out carl just to like fuck with him right which was mean but like at the same time (laughs) this guy had him killed yeah exactly but carl responds to it by grabbing molly and basically saying if you don't fuck off and do whatever you need to do to get me to to help me with this money i'm gonna kill her right right stevie what'd you think of willie lopez's demise Willie Lopez, was it the same pretty much alleyway that uh, Sam died on? Yeah, and Batman's parents. And Batman's parents. I'm pretty sure you can still see the pearls flying off in slow motion. But yeah, he um, ends up... uh, (laughs) There was a scene earlier in the movie with the old guy at the hospital where they're watching a guy on the operating table go into the light. And the guy kind of smiles and like, oh, it's better than the, you know, the opposite or what it could have been. And you kind of get that in the back of your head of like, well, I wonder what the opposite is. Well, with Willie, we learn what it is, um, which is yeah. some of the greatest 90s CGI you will ever find. <laughs> the demons. Yeah. Willie uh, is running for his life through the street uh, from Sam and ends up uh, getting hit by a car. And that's when... Uh, Willie ends up getting dragged to hell by the greatest CGI demons ever taken on film. They are kind of a neat take. Some of the critics who reviewed this film actually specifically hated them. In fact, I'm pretty sure even Roger Ebert, who I frequently disagree with, 
really, really disliked them and said that he thought that they made the effects seem cheap. But I, I thought it was kind of cool. Um, it is kind of weird, though, that like the way the movie depicts this, if you're going to hell, these demons come and drag you there. But if you're going to heaven, God just sends down a beam of light and is like, eh, come up if you feel like it. <laughs> Whenever you're ready. <laughs> yeah. Like, wait, what? God gives you the power of choice, my friend. Right? Yeah, I guess so. So, But the other choices float around on Earth being sad and desperate. Well, like... I think more so than the way the demons look is the way they sound. Yes. It is a good sound. They actually used uh, combined sound, but babies crying was one of the main components. And they added other elements and then distorted it till it sounded the way they wanted. I believe they slowed it down and played it backwards. Yeah. And uh, I think the sound works. I think it still works for me. It does. I like that effect. I mean, when I was a kid, that scared me, man. That yeah. sound, just thinking about that. I did find those kind of freaky. Just the idea that like these demon things would come drag you off to a terrible hell. Like, oh. Yeah. yeah. What do you guys think about Sam's involvement in Willie's death? Like, is he culpable? Like, he kind of, like, spooked him to where he ran into the street. He didn't, like, directly kill him, but, like, he kind of was... You do kind of wonder what Sam's endgame was then if he didn't intend for that to happen. You right? Know? I mean, he still gets to go to heaven at the end, right? Yeah, he does still get to go to heaven at the end. I, I guess maybe you're just like, well, Willie killed him, so it's fair game. Like, I think that's the revenge part. You know, we were talking about how, how Ruben came up with the idea of watching, watching Hamlet. And, like, he was he was partly there to protect Molly, but also partly there to avenge his own his own death. I mean, in, uh, Carl, who we'll get to in a moment, was, was basically intentional. Hmm. You know. Uh, well, Stevie, uh, Otome and Sam, they go to see Molly, who Carl is coming after. They know that. And, uh, you know... Molly's still kind of on the fence because Otome is also a con artist, so she's aware of that. That's what slowed the movie down, was the cast being like this Otome lady, you know, super con artist. Right. They are able to convince her this time, though, with the old floating penny trick, right? That oh, and the yeah. old wearing the old margarita shirt trick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's another one, like, it's really weird that, like, as far as the penny is concerned... It's not just like a force kick where you can make it move. He's like, all of a sudden, he can hold it. He's never really been able to hold anything. He's getting stronger. <laughs> right? Yeah, am I supposed to assume that this means, like, his ghost abilities are improving? Or? Yes. <laughs> See, it doesn't really make sense to me. All right. <laughs> but, I mean, outside of the pottery scene, this is probably one of the most famous scenes in the movie, right? With Unchained Melody? Yes. I mean... Big time. I like this more than like the pottery scene i love when swayze goes inside otome and dances with molly fight the last time i absolutely love that scene yeah i it's another one where i feel like the scene lasted maybe 60 seconds longer than i really <laughs> needed it to but but i will concede for me much more powerful much more impactful and much more satisfying in my opinion than the pottery wheel scene mm -hmm. if it had been left up to me and i appreciate that other people have a different opinion which is fine but if it had been left up to me and I'd been in charge of editing and, and I had, would have had carte blanche, I would have trimmed the pottery wheel scene but, but left this part. 
I think it's especially impactful after he's spent some time being a ghost and it runs that a parallel with the ghost character from the subway where, you know, he sees the pile of cigarettes and like, even though it's a stupid thing to want, like you can see that he's desperate. Like all he wants is that last drag from a cigarette. And it's obvious that like all Sam wants is that one last touch with Molly. Yeah. You know, it's not even about sex. It's just about what I want is to be able to be physically close to you. What I want is to be able to be next to you. And I can't even do that anymore. Like that, that, that scene really worked for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like the big payoff of the movie outside of, you know, Carl's demise. It's Patrick Swayze's trying to, you know, get close to Molly for an hour and a half and he can't even touch her. And right, finally right. we get this and it's just such a crescendo of the movie. I yeah. think some might say that it's awkward that it's, you know, actually Whoopi Goldberg's body. And because what they show us is Patrick Swayze, Swayze yeah. because we, we know that he's inhabiting her. But I, I don't really feel that, the awkwardness, like... You can look past that, I think. it's. Yeah, I agree with you. There's been a lot of debate about that over the years. There are people who said that they, they think the scene would have been better if, if they retained Whoopi Goldberg in the shot. But I, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I think that, like, it visually reinforces the idea that in that moment, Molly's with Sam, not with Otome. Yes. Like, Otome's body might be there, but she's really not. Such a satisfying and beautiful moment. I yeah. love it. And I love the score for this movie. Not just yeah. the song, um, Unchained Melody, but also like the or- orchestral version that they composed for this score yeah. of that song. And uh, the, the general theme, like yeah. the theme song of the movie is great. I-, I love the music in this movie. It's a good one. Good score. Really brings me back, too. Uh, that last moment, though, that they have together is interrupted by Carl, and it kind of gets us into the very end <laughs> of the movie where... Carl's chasing them all around abandoned lofts, right, Stevie? Yeah, I mean, Carl goes uh, full villain mode. He's not even trying to hide it at this point. He's uh, really trying to get, you know, the double or triple murder badge uh, that uh, you get when you become an Eagle Scout. Right? <laughs> but yeah, he's chasing it through these lofts. Um, at certain points, it's kind of like a stage play, especially when he throws uh, Molly into the trash cans. Uh, it's a tad <laughs> clunky, but I love the way it looks on film. Yeah, I like the way it played out, but it's another one of those, like, what the fuck is he doing moments? That choice makes no sense from a character motivation standpoint. It's like, <clears throat> so w- what if you're successful? What if you're successful doing this? The best possible outcome at this rate is you, you've threatened to kill people and you've successfully laundered money for the mob. You don't think you're going to get busted for any of this? Right. You don't think Molly's going to report you to the police? You don't think Oda May's going to report you to the police? Like, you're, at this point, you've already not gotten away with it. This this I'm acting out of desperation play doesn't make any sense to me. It's, it's the, the one big part of the film where I'm like, this is ridiculous. At this point, this character should be running. Like, the last scene in the film should have been, like, Oda May and Sam tracking him down and making sure he got got his due. And instead, it's just him acting stupid. Like, you're not you're not going to accomplish anything doing this. I mean, you can't predict what a desperate man will do, what choice they'll make. No, I mean, it's true <laughs> that people make stupid choices. It's just, it's bit, like, he's smart enough to have set this all up and be a bad, just have a difficult time believing that person would make that choice. But you're right. You are right. I also think that Carl is, he's a friend, but not a friend, if that makes sense. He's the kind of friend that, like, if you got a promotion at your job... Like, he would tell you he's happy for you, but he's not really. 
Like yeah, it's almost I kind did. of like a jealousy thing. Like I, Ooh, I imagine yeah. he's been competitive with Sam for years. He might be even competitive with Molly before you know they got together. I think that's a big component of it. Like there's there's a moment at the beginning where he tells uh, Sam and Molly after they've discovered the the loft is bigger than they thought it was that they should renovate it and flip it for a profit rather than live there. And there's another moment where he and Sam are walking into the bank and um, I would have too because I'm a car person, but uh, Carl oogles over a Ferrari Testarossa. And uh, I, I think the, the play there is that like this guy's primary motive has always been the money mm-hmm. and he wants to move up. But I think also like I don't think he I, I think there was a part of him that did like Sam sort of. But I think also what he really always wanted out of that relationship was Molly. I think it's pretty clear that he, he wanted to be, be with her. Yes. Physically, even aside from any of the rest of this story. So, yeah, for sure. Sam, who had taken over Otome's body, he's like, like, they call it wiped out, where like they can't move. Yeah. Like, I guess like your ghost is tired, like, or whatever. I don't want to say his body, but like, you yeah. know, his ghost form. What a strange role. Um, but <laughs> he kind of comes back and uh, helps them against Carl, who's like basically has them both pinned down, pointing a gun at their head. This is one of the few moments in the movie I would call cliche. It is. It's like that cliche, the hero comes back at the last minute and bonks the bad guy over the head. Where, you know, a scene in an action movie where the bad guys had a gun pointed at the good guy's face for two and a half minutes and could have killed them four times by now, but they drag the scene out until the good guy's partner comes up and bonks the bad guy with a fire extinguisher. So with some stupid shit like that. Just kill him. Just kill him. Like... Well, fortunately, Carl, in his, like, panic, takes himself out. Yeah, he does. With that, like, hook, the swinging hook thing. <laughs> Don't the hook! Yeah. Yeah, well, and then he ends up in the window. Right. That It crashes, like, against the window, and it just, like, falls on him. And even though it gets him in the gut, he dies instantly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> I th- like, I know you guys have been saying, like, trim certain scenes. I think they could have like dragged out Carl's demise a little bit longer. Like take the glass out, walk around bleeding, try going after Sam, fall weak. Like I think they could have extended that just a little bit. I'd agree with you. I think maybe they could have cut 30 seconds, 45 seconds out of the chase portion and given a little more depth to his his ending. Yes. Mm. Sam. Oh, Carl. Yeah, I mean, I like that, like, when Carl and Willie die, they both see Sam. Especially Willie, though, a little bit earlier. Like, he looks scared, too, just yeah. like Sam did. It's almost like he tried to reproduce the face that Patrick Swayze made, right. you know? It is kind of weird that when Willie dies and the demons drag him away, he screams for help. Like, number one, you deserved this. You spent your whole <laughs> life doing terrible things and showed absolutely no remorse over it whatsoever. But number two, like, who's going to help you? Sam? The ghost of the person you murdered? No, no one's going to help you. What do you like, expect him to scream? I deserve I, this. I expect him not to scream at all. He's a fucking ghost. Like, you, you, you knew this was coming. Just take it. Like, ugh. Steve, always so, like, logical. Yeah, in, I, in, in, a peop- in a person's moment of panic, like, Steve's like, no, I would think logically. I mean, I might, I might scream, fuck you or something. <laughs> you know, that would have been better. Fuck you. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, but screaming for help, come on. Don't scream for help. No one's going to help you. After Carl gets taken away by the ghosts, or not the ghosts, but the evil demons. 
Sam has his final moment with Otome and Molly. Uh, Steve, were you at all moved by this scene? Yeah, I liked it. I mean, it was a, it was a little little saccharine for me, but not bad. Not to a degree that really bothered me. I, I did like it. I you know the the job's been done. I feel like I've satisfied what I need to here. And then Molly, through all of it, suddenly can hear Sam's voice, which is kind of a sweet touch because at least the two of them get that catharsis of having been able to hear each other one last time. Although it's going to be really, really fucked for Molly because she's this young woman. She's going to live for decades. And she's going to live for decades knowing that Sam's ghost is a thing and that he's waiting for her. And they're like, what do you do with the rest of your life? <laughs> she can, writes a book. Yeah, can she get married? Like, what do you do? Do you, do you ever have another relationship again? If you knew for a fact that the person you were basically married to is a spirit living in another dimension waiting for you to be there, like, if I knew for sure that was the way it worked, I could never be with anyone else. It would destroy my ability to have another relationship ever again. Like, because what, are you going to show up in heaven with both of them? How do you work that out? <laughs> like, you got two wives or do you, your, your ex-wife got up, came up with another husband? Like, no, I'm not sharing her. Fuck you. I wish your first get lost. That's almost like one of those, like, YouTube videos like that someone would animate and be like after ghosts like Molly <laughs> remarried and dead and right? Sam's up there waiting in the same clothes like oh <laughs> yeah like, she's like look bro I lived 65 years after you died like what do you want from me <laughs> you were me? just a small piece of my life <laughs> right yeah like, like no when I left I expected you were gonna just come alone <laughs> god damn it Steve I'm trying to Talk about the emotionalness of this scene, and there you go. It wasn't terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could have been worse. I love it. Sam is seen by both of them now, right? Neither of them could see him before. Otome could just hear him. And uh, he he leaves off into the light. And, I mean, Stevie, what about you? I like that scene a lot. He almost looks, like, extra holographic uh, when the light's coming down <laughs> on him. Full-on Force Ghost. Yeah, full-on Force Ghost. I think it's great that Molly can see him, and she does that single, you know, that single-eye tear, which is a cliche, but actually somehow works in this movie. Remember, that's why they cast her. She's a good crier, man. Yeah, it somehow works in this movie, and Unchained Melody is just, my God. I know it's played three or four times in this movie, but it works every time. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah, I love this scene and ending. And I love the line... The line that it ends with when he says, the love inside, you take it with you. I think that has a lot of weight, you know, like some of the things that occur to you in life, some of the things that you hold on to in life, like that has meaning in the afterlife is like what they're trying to impress. I think it works really well. I love you, Molly. I've always loved you. Indeed. For sure. <laughs> well, guys, any final thoughts about the movie before we do ratings? Stevie? Um, it's really strange, because I know Demi Moore is a massive name. You know, she's a big-time actress. But is this her best movie? I think probably the best one she's in I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, she was she was good in G.I. Jane. That movie was a big deal when it came yes. out. but. This is I think I think she's better in this. Yeah, I was just I was thinking about it. It's like I don't think she's done like 10 amazing she's, movies, but I think this I think she's amazing in this amazing movie. Yeah. 
I'm with you there. I think it's this one followed by G.I. Jane. Yeah. I mean, she hasn't been in a whole lot else that's worth mentioning. <laughs> Strip tease, maybe. Oh, God. <laughs> so, uh, a couple side notes, I guess. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg was very good in this movie. She became the first actress to ever uh, win Best Supporting Actresses at the Academy Awards, BAFTA Awards, and Golden Globes for a single part. Wow. For her part in this. Uh, the movie did very, very well successfully. It was the highest grossing film of 1990. Paramount was so taken aback by the financial and critical success of the film that they immediately looked at the possibility of creating a sequel. But uh, most of the people involved decided it would be a stupid idea. Um, and they were right. There have apparently been three unofficial, re- well, two unofficial and one official remake of this movie. An official one for Japan that was called Ghost in Your Arms Again, and two of which were made in India. So I was going to talk about that, actually. The 2010 uh, Japanese remake. Right. One of the titles is just Ghost. Oh, okay. When when it was on Netflix, it was just called Ghost. And I watched it. It's uh, directed by Tero Hotani. It's actually pretty good, man. Yeah, I bet it was pretty good. I haven't watched it. I liked it. There was an interesting role reversal, in a way, in the Japanese version of the movie, where it was the woman that died. Yes. Um, Anyway, it's, 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 it's decent. I'd say it's worth checking out for anyone that might be interested. But anyway, go on. The movie was also very successful on home video. It set a record for rentals, which it took from Die Hard 2, which, I mean, which is impressive, although not that impressive, considering 2 is the worst of the first three Die Hards. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But yeah, uh, generally, yeah, very successful movie, big deal. We'll talk about ratings in a second, but but yeah. Yeah, it was the most rented video cassette of 91, so the right. following year when it was made available. It was so popular, it actually sent a rental record on, on Laserdisc as well. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> which, was, which was something, because only a tiny percentage of people in the country really comparatively had Laserdisc. So anytime they did big rental numbers in that format, it was kind of a thing. It, it made $505 million at the box office. Jesus. Which is insane. Yeah, yeah I mean, especially for in adjusted. You right. Know. I mean, it had a $22 million budget. It's not an action movie. No, I and mean, it's another thing. It's not an action film. And it's not, it's like romantic films like this don't typically gross on that level. Right. I think the premise is just so cool that it interests people right off the bat. Yeah. Right. Like the premise is like a huge part of what interested me as a kid. Right. Right. Like this guy is a ghost. So uh, it has that going for it. You were talking about Oscars. So, yeah, Whoopi Goldberg won Best Supporting Actress, yeah, which is awesome. I think she deserved it. This movie also won Best Original Screenplay, and it was nominated for Best Picture, yeah, nominated for Best Original Score. I love the score. And it was nominated for Best Editing. So, mm. yeah. Did well. Very well. Let's do ratings. Steve, on any rating scale you want, what are you going to give Ghost? Oh, my gosh. On a scale of one to ten spirits trapped in the material world, um, I will give this movie, I'll still give it a seven. I'll still give it a seven. It's definitely a better than average movie. A lot of it works. The actors all play their parts very well. Even if they weren't all the first choice for their parts, I think they ended up being the right choices for their parts. I can't really imagine the movie having been substantially better with anyone else playing these parts. Script is generally good. Story's fairly compelling. It is kind of neat to see, you know, a story about a ghost wanting to finish things in the real world before he moves on. Um, 
nice that they gave some depth to the way those characters would handle that situation. Has its flaws, not perfect. Some moments, as we discussed, that I'm not super into. But uh, it's a good movie overall. Definitely carries a lot of nostalgia with it. You know, 1990 was, was a good time for me, and I like 90s movies. But yeah, good stuff. Awesome. Yeah. I'm going to go next, and I'm going to give it a 8.5 out of 10 Love Connection references. <laughs> For those that don't know, Love Connection was a very popular dating show in the 80s and 90s, and it is referenced once very quickly in this movie. Yes. And uh, I remember watching this as a kid and being like, I know that show, and now watching it as an adult being like, I remember that show. Right. So there you go. This movie has a lot of nostalgia for me, as I do a lot of the movies I like, but I think this movie surpasses that. Obviously, it is a critically acclaimed, financially successful, fondly remembered, huge movie with a great cast. And uh, I think it just has a great premise, which is really what carries this movie. Like, it's, it's so cool to see this. And I'm sure many movies with a similar premise have been made since then, very likely, you know, taking some bits of Ghost. And, and no doubt there's some that came before it, but this movie executes it so well, I think. I love the score. I really buy into the love story. I buy into the villains. Uh, they seem evil. I like the comedy. I, I like really every aspect of this movie there are just some small things that make me question like why isn't it done like this why doesn't sam just hold a pen and write <laughs> what he wants to say oh my to god that's Moore? a good point you, could, <laughs> like, you, you can hold the penny you can hold a pen you write dude you just busted the whole thing where's the note motherfucker <laughs> so there's i'm reducing like my that. rating you start to question things like that a little bit when you watch it as a grown person that can think logically if you watch this young, though, you don't question shit. I'll no. tell you that right now. <laughs> I never would have thought of that when I was 10. Fuck me. <laughs> but it still has a really high rating for me. I love this movie a lot. Again, reminds me of my mother. And thank you, Mom, for showing this to me at such a young age. Yeah, Stevie. thanks, boys, Mom. <laughs> Man, I'm going to use a spoilers rating for this one. I'm going to give this a hard yes. Uh, I love every aspect of this movie, especially Swayze's and Demi Moore's uh, chemistry on screen along with the four or five appearances of Unchained Melody. <laughs> that song just slaps so hard. And it's just very of its time. 1990 through 2000 are my favorite years in film. Good years. It, it just looks awesome. And quite frankly, it's just... Uh, <laughs> I'm also a big sucker for romantic movies. So it checks the box there. And it makes sense that the writer of this movie... Also wrote the screenplay for Time Traveler's Wife. A lot of similarities there. <laughs> and there was also an explosion around like 2008, 2016 of like kind of time traveling love movies. Uh, if you're curious about what the best one is, it's About Time with Rachel McAdams. <laughs> Watch that one. It's actually really good. But yeah, I'll give this movie a hard, hard yes. And thanks, Corey, for having me on. Absolutely, man. Love to have you on. I'm surprised you didn't say butterfly effect in your recommended, oh, but <laughs> I just wanted to give Steve a groan there. Oh, right? It's so bad, though. I can't mention that one. No, I know. Stevie, you are part of another podcast, which I am also a part of, but maybe you can tell the listeners where they can find it. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. Um, spoilers uh, with an exclamation point. We look like a cereal bowl uh, with, um, I guess you say, alphabet uh, cereal spelled out. Find us on SoundCloud. We're also on YouTube. And also, we just started a Patreon, uh, which you can find us on at, uh, I think it's Spoilers Podcast. So, yeah. Absolutely. So, that's been an episode. Thank you very much for listening. My big favor request for you, the listeners, is to leave us a 
uh, written review and positive rating on Apple Podcasts. That is the nicest thing that you can do for this podcast without paying any money. We would very much appreciate that. If you're listening on YouTube, please give this a thumbs up. If you're not listening on YouTube, when you get a chance, find it on YouTube and give us a thumbs up. You can also leave us a comment. The more YouTube traction we get, the better. So I really depend on you, the listeners. Give us some feedback. Give us some ratings. Please help us out. And again, just thank you for listening. We love you and good night. Grandma's Boy. That movie's just so stupid. But I, I find it amusing. I don't know why. Grandma's Boy? Yeah. <laughs> like jerking off to the Barbie doll? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Laura. My cock is lost in the jungle. It's up for you to find it. There are some <laughs> comedies like that that, yeah, I do like, um, even though they're very immature. Like right. somehow they've, they've stuck with me. Some of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back 
still works for me. Not yeah. all of it. I like it. I like most of Kevin Smith stuff. Yeah. And after it's all over, you say, "Oh, what a lovely tea party." This is like kind of an unpopular thing now. Do you remember like when it was cool to like Kevin Smith movies? Yeah, it's really weird. I thought like I've, for a while people were like, "Oh, well, you know, I'm a movie buff. I like Kevin Smith movies." It's like, look, because you've heard of Clerk. Clerks does not make you a it's black and white. Yeah, it's black and white. I must be a cinephile. You know. <laughs> what makes you a real fan is if you watched the entire Clerks animated series. You know, I've seen some of it. My boss keeps like demanding that I watch it. It's amusing. It's it's not great, but it's funny. I I I still like Mallrats. Yeah, that one's fun. Uh, my favorite is still Chasing Amy. I know you have had some. Did you say you like lost a friend over that movie or something? Sort of, yeah. I had a big <laughs> argument with somebody about that. About but, the, like the reality of it. Yeah, when he, this is one of those. Oh, guys. that's right. He said it happened to him, right? Yeah, and he was one of these guys that he would see movies and he would be like, "Bro, the same exact thing happened to me." Like, dude, you've said that about every movie you've it's ever like that seen. Meme, um, oh my god, that is literally me, right? You know that meme, and it's like someone watching Fight Club, right? Looking at Brad Pitt, or like. Um, the Joker. Right. Like, oh my yeah. God, that is literally me. And right. it's usually like some like neck beard or something. Yeah. 